Good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to see you all. And slowly, slowly, a few more people coming in. We, we have, for those who don't know, because you might not have checked, still around 30 to 40 sitting online as well. So hi to all of you. And it's great that we can do this, that we can continue to gather together. And it's exciting that we're seeing kids outside, us inside. And over the next few weeks, who knows what will happen, but continue to pray, please. We want to be wise about how this happens. We want to be prepared for whatever kind of happens. There is chances that COVID will circulate within churches. I'm not saying this church, I don't know. But can we please be prepared for whatever it is that happens to be able to love one another and to trust one another as we do this. And so please be conscious of that as you go out there later on, how you engage with each other, that you do it in a way that is loving, that is respectful, that honours the other person. We can all do that, right? And you're all smiling under your masks, aren't you? I can see it. Big smiles, massive everywhere. I'm going to pray before we get stuck into what God has to say to us today. Lord and Heavenly Father, we come before you today and ask that you prepare us to hear maybe afresh, maybe anew, the wonder and the glory, the majesty and the, the marvel of the message Christ crucified. But we also ask that you help us to understand the scandalous message that that is, the shocking message that that is, and help us maybe to shake off some of the comfort that we have put upon ourselves, the complacency that we live with, and instead be reminded that we preach Christ crucified, which actually is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And might we then be a church that promotes the glory and the majesty, the marvel and the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. And ultimately, Lord, we ask that through this, your name may be magnified and praised. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Slogans. You know those slogans that you hear all the time? I don't know if you've got particular ones that come to your mind straight away, I had a couple this week come to my mind. I wonder if you can guess which companies are attached to these slogans. Because slogans are interesting, aren't they? they a slogan actually communicates something underneath, a narrative that that company or that business or whoever it is is trying to sell. They're trying to sell something with a particular narrative that matches with the audience that they're trying to capture. So, open happiness. Anyone? Come on. The masks don't make you mute. Anyone want to guess? Co who? Coke. Jeremy, I'm disappointed. Open happiness, yes, is Coke's. There it goes. All the happiness comes out. What about I'm loving it? Maccas. Mickey D's. I really enjoyed this because the Austra think about again the message underneath this. The Australian one is it all comes together at Maccas. And when I was searching them, just under it was Austria. And I love this. It says, my tongue itches for McDonald's. <laughs> yeah? New Zealand. Ready? Just because. Makes sense, doesn't it? New Zealand. Oh, sorry for those that are from New Zealand. Probably one of my favorite, though, was Canada's. Ha, ha, ha. McDonald's. Very Canadian, apparently. And then the US. And again, think about the narrative underneath this. There's something for everyone to love at McDonald's. Because you're worth it. Anyone? Yeah, one of my faves. Laurie, yeah, one of my faves, sure. A hard-earned thirst needs a big cold beer. And the best cold beer is Vic. Some would say. I feel like a... Tui's. They've actually recently released a, a product called Proudly Ordinary. Think about what that is communicating to and the market that they're reaching out to. Aussie kids are 
Wheat Bix Kids, the spirit of Australia. Come on, what is it? Book your ticket, Qantas, says Jeremy Bailey. Oh, dear. Go your own way. That's a bit of a different one. This is the one that comes to my mind as soon as I think of slogans, because it's got the song, you go your own way, go your own way. Azuzu. Azuzu. Ah, you'll all be quizzed on this next week. And finally, let's go places. Anyone? Well, I'll tell you who it is. Ready? Toyota. Toyota, let's go places, is the verbal expression that captures the essence of the Toyota brand. It's the enduring spirit that inspires people to live life to the fullest, whatever their adventures may be and wherever they may take them. Use our tagline, let's go places with intention and integrity. It's interesting, isn't it, what these things communicate. What about Paul's slogan? What was his? Christ crucified. A king hanging dead on a cursed cross, which we've read today, which we read today, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. It is the verbal expression that captures the essence of the church. Christ crucified. Our slogan. A man from a nowhere town, born to nobody parents, with a riffraff bunch of followers, with zero credentials, who was hung, who was hanging out with the lowest of the low, the least of society, who was arrested after his own people rallied against him and rejected him, who was abandoned by those who were closest to him, while he was then abandoned, it seemed, by his God, hanging on a cursed Roman cross designed to strip him of all dignity, of all worth, to humiliate, to defeat, to shame. Christ crucified. It is a terrible marketing campaign particularly to a world that is enamelled with self, right? In a world where we have radical individualism, consumeristic tendencies and an anti-other authoritarian way of functioning, it is foolishness. Fire your marketing team right now. You've missed the mark, Paul. Who is the head of marketing? That's right, it's God. (laughs) The Lord who gives us this one marketing slogan. Really, doesn't he? That should never change. To know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We'll look at those words next week. This was and is and always will be a terrible marketing campaign in the eyes of the world, based on their wisdom. It was in Corinth. It is today. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, those very ones who may see it as foolishness, those very ones who may see it as a stumbling block, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, sadly, I think for many of us, we've forgotten the scandal of the cross, that we become complacent about actually what the cross means, which is why I wanted to set up that contrast. Or, and this is probably even bigger of an issue for us, we've absorbed and been seduced by, we've been raised on and bred by the narratives that surround us that are not in line with the narrative that fits behind the slogan of Christ crucified. We have chosen a different wisdom to live by, a different narrative to play out for us. And the issue that becomes big because of that is that there will be divisions, big divisions in churches. There will be divisions within self. And we will then not be able to proclaim this glorious gospel to a world that needs to hear it. This is the issue that we started unpacking last week that lay beneath. So if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've started in 1 Corinthians. And last week, we had a look at, and I hope you have your Bibles open so you can do the old flicky flick, 
at the end, at verse 17, it said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, Paul said, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence like the world desires, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And now he turns to talk about the cross. What does he mean by saying it might be emptied of its power? And why is that such a big risk? Then he'll talk more about the church we'll look at next week. And then following after that, he'll talk about the message, the way that he preaches and proclaims this thing. And so to begin with, what is now set up is a beautiful contrast, a crazy contrast, really, between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, the worldly wisdom and the cross. And so let's have a look, verse 18, we have two words here, two words, one word of wisdom, another word of wisdom. For the message, it says, of the cross, see how it's connected to what was just said before, although there's a heading probably in your Bible, these two things just flow. The cross of Christ emptied of its power, oh, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There is a contrast set up here using verse 17 and similar words. There's a word logos, so it's the word of the cross, not just the message of the cross. And back in verse 17, where it says, not with wisdom, maybe in your Bible it might say wise words, that is the Sophia logos, so wisdom words or wise words. We are talking about not the way that people think, but the way that God has expressed how he believes things are to work, and it's communicated through the cross. And just the word cross in the ancient situation that this letter would have been written into, that would have been a difficult thing to to say, to speak, and they would have understood exactly what the cross was. We've missed it a bit, right? Right? It's so distant to us, the idea of crucifixion. Let me say, if I say lockdown, you'll get it, right? But if you said lockdown a few years ago, nobody had any idea. And maybe in 15, 20, 30 years, we might start to forget what this idea of lockdown was and the cringe that we have when we think about going back into lockdown. Cicero wrote that the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. You shouldn't even hear this word. And so to have a leader who's proclaiming a wisdom that comes to the message of the cross through a Christ who is crucified that way is absolutely ludicrous. And so it is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Power. The most powerful message when God appears most powerless, right? God destroyed on a cross. This doesn't make any sense. And I know, I know, I know. We read it logically and you can find it in Isaiah and you can find it throughout Scripture, but it doesn't make sense. That is the wisdom of God being revealed throughout time and history. Then it was a shock when it happened. It is shocking that this is our tagline. We may have taken it for granted a little bit and we need to have a fresh look at it because the scandal of the cross can't fade. We can't let it fade in the way that we think because maybe if we let it fade, it's become a little bit complacent and a little bit comfortable. We need to stretch the fact that victory was won by giving up life, that security is found by losing self, that shame is removed by a shame-filled death in the eyes of all of mankind and at the centre of the Christian faith is a glorious Scandal, well, a gloriously scandalous stain. The cross is a stain. 
See, imagine it today. Imagine news reports. Imagine the way that comedians would be speaking about this. Imagine all of the women's weeklies that you read when you're sitting at the dentist. All of these threads that you can scroll through in her scene. Jesus, the jester, crucified. A Jew from backwater town Galilee dies on a cross. Apologies to listeners at home for uttering that word. That wooden piece of shame reserved for criminals, slaves and rebels alike. Jesus was stripped and strung up after his own people rejected him. His new disciples deserted him. His his powers apparently disappeared when he most needed them. And this jester has claimed to be the king of the entire world. The divine son of not just the gods, but the God he's claiming. Not just of the Jews, but of all people. What a fool. Please don't be fooled by this fake news. But there are two words. There's the the worldly wisdom, and then there's this. And what are the outcomes? Those who believe in the worldly wisdom that see it as foolishness, they are perishing. But those who believe in the cross, they're being saved. And then Paul quotes in verse 19, you see there, he says, for it is written, he's quoting scripture. He quotes Isaiah 29 verse 14, where what happens in that setting is that human wisdom has failed for the people who are attacking Israel for attacking God's people. And he says to them that I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. The point is, worldly wisdom can't stand up to God's wisdom, even if what God's wisdom looks like is foolish. Not because it's thinking, and he's not saying just all of you be idiots. No, he's saying because it's worldly, because it's based on you and your egotism and what you think. It's going to be fatally flawed because it's going to be directed to something that is false because you can only set it up that way. The idea that we all like to believe that we can figure it out if we just think hard enough, work hard enough, work through it together well. What does he say? No. And he asks questions. Verse 20, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Rhetorical questions that he rattles off. And he rattles off these respected voices, the influences of the day. A wise person, attaching that to like the Greeks. You know, he's going to do this thing with the Jews and the Greeks in a minute. But the Greeks in particular, he's thinking here, the thinkers and the philosophers, the sophisticated the teachers of the law were thinking the religious rabbis of the day. Maybe the Jews attached themselves more to that. And the philosopher or the debater, the Corinthians, are sort of a bit more in view here. The sophists, remember I mentioned that last week? The people of this age, this day, all of them. Who are they? These are the people that have influence. The sophists, the teachers, the philosophers, the people that are directing the narrative of the day. And there's different factions and groups that listen to different people and different parts of what they have to say, right? Who are they for us, though? Who do you reckon are the people that are doing this? It changes over time, doesn't it? I mean, politicians probably sit there a little bit for us. Philosophers still, yes, we listen to particular teachers that rattle off their wisdom that sounds logical. But then there's the film industry. There's music. There is ads, the sports stars and what they seem to say. The, the, they're not called music stars, what are they called? Pop stars, all right, pop stars, the, those people, what they rattle off. 
the social media influencers, these people that somehow get a platform and because they're just doing this thing that looks cool and great, people start to listen to them. Why? Comedians, for a long time, comedians, from the day of the jester to the days of jesters, the, the way that you listen to a comedian, they are communicating stuff, trying to set a narrative. TV series, what you watch, everything's trying to communicate a story to us that we want to live in. Our stories are shaped and then moulded and they mould and then shape us. See, we have to be cautious with this. There are influences everywhere, but what are they based on what God's wisdom has said? Verse 20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And what is pictured here is like in Romans chapter 1, where Paul again there unpacks this idea that people will search and search and search for God, but actually what they're really searching for, well, so they'll search for ways to replace God. And they'll do it with all created things, even if it is something formed up in their minds, but they'll come up empty. There's actually a really uh, helpful illustration to think about what that looks like. And it's the, the illustration of religion and the elephant. Some of you may have heard it, where there's this elephant in a room and four blind men go into the room. And each of them goes and starts, because it's, they're blind and they can't see the elephant, they don't know that it's an elephant that's in there, they start groping around trying to figure out what is this object. And the first one goes and grabs the trunk and shouts out to everybody, it's a snake, I've discovered a snake is in this room. The next one's down on his hands and knees and he finds this big trunk feeling thing down the bottom and it, 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 it's a tree, I found a tree. One other person is walking around and happens to get around the back and is tugging on this thing at the back that also has a, it feels like a rope. I found a rope. I don't know what it's tied to. Another just walks straight into the side, smack, and says, I just found a wall. And so he's, this is what they think when they've found this elephant. And that is often the picture given to us that Christianity fits into, that all religions fit into, but that's what worldly wisdom fits into. Because when you are from within, and you don't have a view from the outside. How do we even know that it's an elephant that they're playing with? You don't. You need revelation, don't you? No individual religion can discover it. No individual philosophy or way of thinking can discover it. There's only one way that we can discover what all of this is about. And it's through revelation that ultimately climaxes in the cross of Christ Jesus. Because you might want to reject the idea that there's any God, deny his existence. You might want to use religion to go groping around trying to discover that elephant. But we need revelation. Somebody from outside to tell those four people, you're blind. You'll never discover it alone. There's an elephant. And the elephant in the room for all of us is actually the cross of Christ, the glorious gospel. How we come to know that, we're going to tease out in coming weeks. But we get a bit of a hint in verse 21. What's it say there? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, what's just been said then, God was pleased. What was he pleased to do? To save, it says at the end. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. To save the proud, the rejecting, the religious, the seeking, the groping, to save them. How? Through the foolishness of what was preached, through the cross. And what for or who for? Those who believe, those who trust this wisdom and that that then defines all things. See, what is needed is wisdom from the outside and wisdom from the outside stepped in when Christ Jesus arrived, the embodiment of wisdom, the person, the word, as John says, right? Embodied, incarnate, crucified. That reveals to us who God is. 
And salvation comes from adopting that narrative, from adopting that slogan, from saying, I now live with the cross at the very center of all that I do. And you can go back all the way to the beginning of the story of the scriptures to tease this out. The gospel of God seeking out his people, a people who rejected him, not them seeking him, him seeking them out, pursuing them. Like we heard before, Jeremy mentioned it with Paul, pursuing Paul and revealing himself most clearly through the cross. Now, this isn't an apologetic. This isn't an argument for the existence of God because remember who Paul is writing to. And this is why I'm preaching it this way to you all because many of you are convinced of it, sure. But how convinced of it are you? How much does it go to the very depths of the narrative that you live by? Because what is the risk that Paul is unpacking? The risk has been realized in Corinth. They've adopted a different story. Remember the cultural context they've found themselves in? They're living kind of in Corinth, not in the church. We can do a similar thing. And what he does now is he teases out sort of two demands or desires by using Greeks and Jews. I just want to show you this really quickly and then try and draw it together to apply for us. Because there's not, we got many Jews in here? Obviously welcome, I'm just curious. My neighbours are Jew. Yeah, that's a story for another time. Any Greeks? No. No Greeks. Half. Hey, claim it. Like most Greeks, if they're like one-tenth, claim it from what I understand. Yeah, love my Greek brothers and sisters, even the halves. (laughs) Okay, let me read this. Verse 22, the Jews and the Greeks. Verse 22 says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. What's he talking about here? Jews, what they're demanding when it comes to science. Well, actually, everybody, you've got your Bibles with you, so everybody flick back to Matthew chapter 16, if you can. It won't be on the screen, so you're just going to have to um, bring your Bibles, I guess. If you need one, tell us. Matthew chapter 16. This is what is when Jesus was confronted by the Jews. Look what happens in verse 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the teachers of that day, came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Like, show us something to prove who you are. And, and Jesus has this little sort of almost riddle when he says, when evening comes, you'll say, it will be fair weather for the, red, the sky is red. And you want to interpret these things. And he's saying, you're being wicked in the way that you're asking for what it is. And he just walks away. Now, there's a bit of an irony in all of this. Because Jesus did, but particularly by this point in Matthew, perform heaps of signs. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's, he's, he's given sight to the blind. But there was one sign, one sign as well, that hung above his head when he was crucified. It said, King, Messiah of the Jews, was hanging there dying. And the irony there was too much. They're going to demand. They want, and that, but that's a stumbling block, it says. What's it say? Verse 23. Jude, sorry, yeah, verse 23. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. We'll come to the the Gentiles, but the stumbling block. A crucified king was scandalous to a Jew. It said it in their law. Deuteronomy 21, 23 talks about if you're hung on a tree, you are cursed. And here's the Messiah, the one that's meant to be powerful and reigning and ruling, hanging on their cursed tree. And Paul doesn't avoid this. He says it, Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. His slogan continues to be, Messiah, King, crucified. But their slogan was 
Messiah King, powerfully reigning and ruling and liberating his people, fighting off the Romans and ensuring that Judaism reigns and rules. This didn't fit with the power or the proof that they desired and demanded. They demanded that Christ be powerful, but he did display his power, didn't he? Colossians 3, 2, Colossians 2, 15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made what? A public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. They demanded power and they demanded proof. These are the people that say, if God would just show up. They're saying to Jesus, just show up and prove to us you're God. Because you're not fitting with the categories that we believe fit with who God is, who the Messiah is. So just show up. Do you ever have people who say that to you? Do you ever sometimes feel like that? Sometimes I do. But God did show up. He lived, he died, and he rose again. Christ crucified says God showed up. And it's a historical fact. Go search it. It's as true as true can be. But it's not the fact that's the issue for most people at the end of the day. It's what that fact means. And so that's where the Greeks come in a little bit too. Because what were the Greeks asking for? Wisdom. They wanted wisdom. But it's foolishness to them. Wisdom sort of pointing to this idea of personal position and wisdom and understanding. So it's about pers- like status, respect and honour. Uh, your place in society was very important to them and how you communicated that, whether you were worth following. And then wisdom, being educated and sophisticated and cultured. And the Gnostics that were starting to be developed at this stage had this either idea of an extra spiritual higher wisdom that allowed for freedom to live, for, to live this life for self and to live that radically individualistic, consumeristic, anti other authoritarian life. They would proudly boast in humanity's progress and abilities, and that's the context the Corinthians are really in. The slogan, therefore, Christ crucified, there is no category for a Messiah, a king, who ends up being crucified. That's a, that makes about as much sense as decaffeinated coffee, right? Or NRL being called football. You use your hands, people. Soccer is what... Be, Football is actually... Anyway, let's not get into it. It's much deeper than that, though, right? Christ crucified is shameful. It is culturally despicable. And it still is today when we think about what it actually means. Maybe not the act. We don't really get it. But only an idiot would believe this, is what a Greek thinks. You are crazy to think that way. And I want to try and draw it together now just to finish. There are so many narratives that are swirling around in our culture, aren't there? But there is one true message that will stand and live forever. All the others, verse 19 told us, will be destroyed. Humanity's attempt to rewrite the way that it is is just going to end in the way it's going to be destroyed. Humanity's attempt to write our own narrative, our own story, it is futile and it will fail. They will perish. They need this narrative. Be it through religion or to straight out rejection or maybe a combination of those two with the recent arrival of relativism where anything sort of goes. There are so many narratives, and I'll just very quickly, very quickly, religion. All the ways to try and prove yourself to God. Those ways will fail. We will fail. But then there's rejection, potentially. Progressive humanism, you could call it. The way that the world has formed this idea, like the Greeks, that in our own thinking, in our own fighting, we can prove it to ourselves and to others, and we don't really even need a God at that point. Or then there's relativism, which is increasingly happening across the board, where you kind of combine it all and anything sort of goes, you do you, I do me, and we can be a pluralistic society that just somehow gets along. But all of these narratives will fail. All of these narratives will leave people feeling futile because they're human constructs. 
But we in the church, we need to watch that we don't get seduced by the stories around us. Because there are slogans. And because we're in the suburbs, I'm going to focus it in on that. So if you're from an urban area, come and we'll chat and I'll speak a bit more about how I think it fits there. But the Shire has a slogan. Suburbs have slogans. And how they have a lot to do with this idea of personal, like being personally protected. And it's a bit of a blend of everything, right? And relativism fits quite well to it. Maybe the slogan is peacefully flourishing in the suburbs. Because here's the story and vision of the suburbs. And a book this guy Tim Foster wrote a little while ago is fantastic at teasing this out. You can check that out too. But the suburbs were constructed to create a safe space, right? For family to flourish. And and it sounds good. It's a good narrative. A, A separate and settled existence where you can pursue your dreams. You can establish your status and enjoy without the threats from the outside. That means... You, and Menai's a perfect place for that, right? We've got two bridges to help. And the suburbs have boomed. A comfortable, secure and settled life in an ordered domain with one's nearest and dearest, your family, your friends and Fido, your pets. Free to pursue what will, whatever it is that will bring you happiness and minimal disruption to that happiness being able to function day to day as much as it possibly can. To consume and move on and up through the status levels. It is an attractive and aspirational narrative, isn't it? I'm loving it. Open happiness. Let's go, well, let's go to that place, right? This is a narrative that many live by. And it's not to say there's anything wrong with having that as part of your life. But the suburbs in the church is the wrong narrative. It needs to be the church in the suburbs and Christ in us, not in Corinth, in us. I want to pull together the last few weeks to do this with just a caution. We may have been, through the commodification and consumerism that we experience day to day, we may have been forced into this space where we are creating a more comfortable and palatable Christianity void of the realities of the cross without even realising it. And I get it. Of course we want people here in this building. Of course we want people to come and be part of our church. But we can't offer them a false narrative to live by. The result is they perish, right? And I can't stand up here and preach something like that because the result is you perish. Christ crucified. We can't have a suburbanized Christianity where God exists and created all things. He ordered all things and he sort of just watches over human life but doesn't really engage with it all that much. He wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other, as is sort of taught in the Bible or whatever religious sort of thing you have or spirituality you've got. The central goal in life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God doesn't need to be involved, except for when we desperately need him, like we're asking the waiter to come and help out. And good people, of course, get to go to this heaven because I can't reconcile a God who wouldn't let me, at the end of the day, in. See what happens there? God exists for us. And so we do. We treat him like the local cafe owner and expect to be served at all times. The church then exists for us. You and you exist for me. No wonder division was happening in the Corinthian church. And this is subtle. Subtly it becomes something that we don't even realise is happening, but there is an edge. Because in that church, there is little space for grace. Because you don't need the cross. There is little space for generosity or forgiveness. Because I've worked for this. I've established my domain. 
There's little space for the outsider too because we've, we don't, they're going to disrupt things. The other is, that's hard. There's little time for anything that may put pressure on me or my family or threaten my own well-being, any sort of suffering. And so the calls that Christ makes upon our life just don't really make a lot of sense at that point. That's going to be shameful and painful and we will start to have division. But there is a third way. The alternative narrative, the one true message that verse 24 says, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, people from these spaces, right? Like you and me, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. We have to live within this narrative, right? Because even if it is foolish, even if it doesn't seem to make any sense, even if it does seem to be weak, God says, the one from outside, I came and demonstrated to you the truth. Right here, Paul is reaching out to a bunch of people who have been called to this third way. Right here, I'm reaching out to a bunch of people who have been called to this third way. In Corinth, in Christ, in community, saying, come on, let's shape our lives around this gospel truth. Let's embody this gospel. And that is so countercultural, isn't it? We live in a radically individualistic, consumeristic, and anti-other authoritarian culture. And this says, be about the other person. That's not individualistic. Give of yourself. That's not consumeristic. Hand over all authority to the one who is outside of this and trust him that he's revealed the truth to you. Humble, gracious, submissive. These are foolish words. But I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I'm done with because I now live for Christ Jesus, knowing that he died for me. What does a slogan like Christ crucified say about money and materialism, about anger and rage due to selfish desire or to violence even? What does it say about love, how we view the other, how we view ourselves? What does the underlying narrative say to our radically individualistic, consumeristic and anti other authoritarian culture. What does it say to a divided people? It says, remember Christ Jesus, because there is so much more offered than the worldly wisdom of this age, and we know it deep down. There is so much more than a comfortably complacent and constructed Christianity, so much more than religion or rejection or relativism, and it is found at the foot of the cross. The wisdom of the word of the cross where we see that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. For God has revealed to us the power and wisdom of the cross.